Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am honored to present an interview with Broadway star Wanda Richard. You might know Wanda from her Tony-nominated performance as Peggy Sawyer in the original company of 42nd Street, and she's also starred on Broadway in Nine and A Chorus Line, and around the country in The Baker's Wife, Company, Cabaret, and Damn Yankees with Gwen Verdon. And now, without further ado, here's Wanda Richard. So I would love to start by asking you, how did you first become interested in performing? Well, I I really sort of didn't have a choice. I, I, um, my mom says she noticed me uh, dancing in my playpen before I was two years old. Wow. Um, I have sort of an unconventional life all the way around from the time I was a teeny tiny girl. I had, uh, a memory of being on stage somewhere from the time I was like two or three years old. And I tell the story of we were living, I was born in Chicago and we were living in the upstairs part of a um, house we shared with my grandparents. And there was a bathroom in there that had a little step up to the shower. And I would go hide in there and close the door and get up on that little step and turn around. And that door was my audience. Awesome. I had never been to a theater. I didn't know what it was. I just, it was in me. It was as as if I had a soul memory of it. And um, my mom noticed my rhythm and that it was unusual. And uh, I had I had a very empowered childhood. I was an only child. Um, my mom's mom and my dad's dad met and got married after they did. So it was like I had my two real grandparents, my mom and me, and that was, my dad was in the service, so he was gone most of the time. And I just um, started taking hula lessons first with my mom. Uh, she went to some hula classes and I caught on, you know, because she noticed this this rhythm and I would stand in my playpen and just, you know, shake my bottom like a Tahitian dancer. So that felt very real to me. And then she found, I always say my mom found the best teachers for me throughout my life. So she noticed it and took me, I, I started dancing in Miami. My dad was stationed there. And so I started actually taking classes when I was five and I started performing in my first recital when I was five. I did let me entertain you behind, uh, I I was behind the curtain. I never forget it. I walked out in between this line of girls. They were probably, they seemed so old to me at the time. They were probably, I don't know, young teenagers from maybe 11, 12, maybe even a little 10 on up. I sang, let me entertain you. And then I danced with the teacher that recital. And then it was, it was in my blood. And then my dad got stationed in Connecticut. I won some talent contests and got some trophies. And um, my mom just happened to find great teachers no matter where we were. So when I was nine years old, we decided to that. Well, I didn't have anything to do with it at that point. But my mom and dad decided that uh, they go back to Chicago as a home base with my 
grandparents. And then he continued with the Coast Guard wherever he was stationed so that my mom could get me some really professional teachers. And at that point, she found, um, are you familiar with the tap teacher, Tommy Sutton? Have you ever heard of him? No, I haven't. Tap tap teacher from the South side of Chicago. Really at that point, he was it. And um, I had to audition for him. She took me downtown to audition for Mr. Sutton. Um, I was nine and he didn't have a class he could put me in because I was too advanced for the younger class and not quite advanced enough for his advanced class. So he worked with me privately for a year and then put me in his advanced class when I was 10 with his professional dancers. But uh, my first show was in a dinner theater in Chicago, a cabaret. I was doing, um, you know, through my dance classes there, I, I met a couple of kids that we all wanted to go, you know, put on a show. So my mom and my best friend at the time, a dance partner, John, uh, who was 14 at the time, and his mom was a seamstress, we got uh, a group together called the Showbiz Kids. And we she made these incredible costumes. Uh, and my mom carried the phonograph around with all the vinyls, you know, and we choreographed our own numbers. We put the shows together and uh, packed into her Volkswagen. What did she have? She had a, a yellow Volkswagen station wagon at that time. And we went around Chicago. We performed at old age homes, at orphanages. We did the muscular dystrophy telethon, which was awesome. And people started paying us. So we put the money in the in the kitty and which would buy the more costumes and that's how it began but john went professional at this dinner theater in chicago that used to be a it was a defunct roller skating rink in the round <laughs> theater and uh, he said you gotta audition for this show so it was at a time where you could sort of fib about your age because i was only 14 and so i put 18 on my resume and uh, I sang Where Am I Going from Sweet Charity, which later became the only audition song I ever sang for my entire career. <laughs> and I got the job. And then the lead in that show got sick and they put somebody else on. And I thought it was the end of life and my career. And I went and I confessed that I was only 15. I lied about my age and that I knew the parts. And well, they let me go on. Uh-huh. And that, that, uh, the performer doing Sally Bowles was uh, quite, she really had a vocal issue. So they asked her to just stay out for six weeks because uh, I was going to then go into another uh, Dairy Crown series with some big stars. And that, so I had six weeks at 15 years old of, of doing Sally Bowles. And that was my, what would you say, springboard into the rest of my career. Wow. Take a breath. <laughs> So that's how it started. (laughs) That is amazing. And did you have performers that you saw that you admired or heard on cast albums or anything like that? No, at that time, first of all, we were so busy. I literally took classes just all week long. My my mom worked downtown Chicago. So my grandmother would pick me up from school with like a bologna sandwich, my tights, my ballet shoes. Tupperware thing of milk and I'd be getting dressed in the car and she'd take me to class so I was constantly either in school or in dance class and I I literally didn't even have time to watch movies I mean I I knew who Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly were sort of knew who Ann Miller was but it was just about me uh learning my craft and and basically uh like nobody ever had to ask me to go practice I was 
I was just born with this passion. Uh, it was, I believe it was destiny, you know, for me to do that. And that's, it just, it just springboarded past then. And, and once I got uh, my equity card, things just opened up for me. And I, I, I sort of say everything I touched turned to gold at, at that point in my life, because there were a lot of shows happening in, in the Chicago area. And then we would get these, uh, they would, from Actors Equity, they would send these, you know, like four by six cards in the mail saying there'd be an audition in New York or something or other. And my mom and I would hop in the Volkswagen and drive to New York City for the audition. And I'd usually get it. And then I'd go out on the road and, uh, basically was working consistently uh the the show the shows that i did after i did sally at in the round when i was 15 were um it was the airy crown summer series it was damn yankees with gwen verdon and ray walston my favorite martian a showboat with mickey rooney and Harv presnell and then oklahoma with john davidson so uh -huh. i i was one of those um kids that just i i i I kept my eyes open, my ears open, and I just watched. I was always in the wings watching, you know, the professionals in those shows and, and, and learning from from their years of experience. And oh, yeah. that's basically, I didn't have an idol per se. I was just, you know, <laughs> right. Just totally focused on doing what I needed to do the you know to be the best I could be. I oh, oh let me tell you something. When 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 I was in my dance school in Chicago, we did a, a production of Mr. Scrooge for Christmas, and I played Mrs. Dilber, the housekeeper, and I had to sing. And mm -hmm. I said, I, I can't, I I can't. I'm not a singer. I'm a dancer. I'm I will never sing on stage. I will not sing. And they forced me to do that. And I found out I could sing. So I never had any acting classes and I never had any vocal classes uh -huh. by the time to Broadway. Well, before that, I had done chorus line, but um, it was basically uh, dance classes that got me to the place of, of getting my first professional job. Right. That's in, it, uh, in a nutshell, pretty much. And I would be curious to ask specifically what it was like learning by watching Gwen Verdon since she was one of the sort of best female dancers. And I almost went on for her, actually. I turned 16 oh. while I was doing that. We, She asked me, it was right at the time that Bob Fosse was getting ready to put uh, Chicago up on Broadway. And Gwen sort of took me under her wing just a little bit when we were in Chicago. And, you know, she she recognized my talents and she knew I was young. So she asked if um, I would have permission to go on the tour that was then going to go on after that Airy Crown series for the uh -huh. summer at the, um, uh, they call, what was it? the Goober Circuit, Westbury Music Fair. It was three different places for the summer since I was, you know, under age pretty much. My mom knew I'd be in good hands and Gwen asked if I would join the company. And so I, I toured with that for the summer, Damn Yankees with Gwen. And uh, I, I learned her role just from being in the wings. And she lost her voice uh -huh. at, at one point. And um, I, I sort of, I did, I, you know, I didn't want to step out of bounds, but um, they were, they didn't know what they were going to do and they couldn't cancel the shows. So I, I marched into Ray Walston who had directed it. <laughs> into his dressing room and I told him I knew the, I knew the role and he said oh my gosh Wanda I wish you would have told me before this we're we have so-and-so in rehearsals to get this done tonight it ended up Gwen went on with a body mic which were they were not you know popular at the time and, they, and she got through the show but it was 
it was um working with all of them was an incredible experience just being in that um you know the huge theaters and the huge audiences that that showed up packed houses oh. you know it was, it was just it was exciting for me and um i loved i loved every minute of it so I learned as I went along, but I was prepared at 15 when I got my first show to obviously to go on as a lead. Right. And then we, uh, then Chorus Line came out on right. Broadway and we saw it in the Chicago papers and there was just something in me that said, I have to do that show. So we, we, my mom and I went to New York to see it. We sat up way up in the balcony in heaven next to a pole. And uh, somebody had told while I was doing the damn Yankees, one of the dancers, uh, well, Harvey Evans said, oh, you'd be perfect for the the role of of Val, but, you know, TNA role. (laughs) But as soon as the opening number started, my mom and I spotted Donna in the red dress. Uh, And when when the Cassie number came up, I just said, no, no, (laughs) that's that's the role I want. And so uh, the auditions came through Chicago. I was 19. Uh, I was going to beauty school to have something to fall back on. And at my mom's suggestion, because she had been, she was going. So we were sort of going to beauty school together on Saturdays and curling our ladies' hair and doing all that. And uh, this audition came up at, they were going to be opening New Year's Eve in Chicago. So I went to the Schubert and I auditioned and I, and I didn't hear back. Uh, and I was surprised. And then I got a call at beauty school one day and it was from home and I thought I I you know everything my stomach dropped out of me I thought something had happened to somebody at home and it was my mom calling me to tell me that they had called from Los Angeles and offered me uh, a job a contract with a course line with the first national touring company wow that is went out to LA and joined that and then you know the rest is sort of history with that uh they they asked me to learn the Cassie dance Michael Bennett came in he fired uh, six or seven of the people that had just been hired and just learned the show. And I went, oh my gosh. And so I did the Cassie dance for Michael and he stopped me halfway through and he said, no, 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 darling. That's all I need to see. Uh, can you do Judy? Can you do read for me? Sheila, can you? So I came back after our day off and found out that I was the first cover to Cassie, Judy, Christine, Sheila I, I mean I did six of the nine female roles as wow. an under, and that's really where I got my Michael Bennett was my mentor uh and eventually being my mentor he said I want her on the line as soon as there's an opening and uh they they didn't want to give me Cassie because I was so young so I I handed in my notice and said huh. I'm not going to be a valuable understudy anymore uh if you don't give me Cassie then I'm going to have to leave so right for my 20th birthday, that was my wonderful gift from heaven. I got my dream role. I got to do the girl in the red dress. And then later, after 42nd Street, got to go back to it on Broadway. Michael asked me to please uh, come back and do the show on Broadway. So that brings us up to to um, pretty much what prepared me for the audition for 42nd Street. Right, right. And I would love to ask before then, having seen Donna McKechnie in A Chorus Line on Broadway, how much did you do that was sort of similar to her? And was there any pressure to be similar to what she had done? Or No, not at all. Oh. Michael, it, I, I had done the role actually for a year until it, it took a year for Michael to actually come and see our company in Boston. Oh. And 
then he worked with Anthony Teague. Tony Teague was my Zach. He worked with the two of us. And he basically, Michael always had a drummer at rehearsals, no matter what. And so it was a very exciting several hours with him. He said, you know, basically, darling, you're you're an actress and you sing and we want to hear you sing. So he coached me with that and then said, you have an incredible gift of listening. So just listen as well as you do and be you. And he set the tempo on me. He set the choreography on my body because I danced very much like Michael Bennett. And uh, he he loved my Cassie. So he just, that was my acting school right there, actually, that afternoon. <laughs> that <laughs> afternoon, being able to play all those different roles in, yeah. in a chorus line as an understudy before I, I got the role of Cassie. So uh, I'll, I'll be forever grateful and um, miss, miss Michael Bennett so very much. He, he gave wow. me so much. He was there when I opened in 42nd Street and sent me wow. a beautiful telegram and um, asked me to be part of a, a workshop he was doing with Treat Williams and Susie Kurtz that never ended up happening because we lost him. And then, of course, there was the Chorus Line Gala when it became the longest running musical on Broadway. And he called and asked me to do that. And there was a Jane Fonda fashion show that Theone Aldridge designed the uh, workout stuff for. So he asked me to do that. So there was Michael Bennett played a, a huge role in, in my life uh, up until the time. I got 42nd Street. Right. Well, I'm just talking nonstop. Sorry. There's just a lot to fit in. <laughs> oh, no. Yes, please. <laughs> I love hearing it. And so before that time when you took over as Cassie on the tour, did you get to go on as any or all of the six other women that you covered? All the time. I was always on. And that's why they didn't want to give me. the. I mean, they were saying it was because I was too young. And I said, well, Michael Bennett didn't think I was too young. <laughs> And he won me on the line as soon as there was an opening. You've passed me by twice now. And how am I going to grow in the role unless I get out there and do it? Do you know, I'm I'm a valuable understudy. You can call me like there'd be times I'd walk in at half hour and it would just be on the board. Role of Val being played by Wanda Richards tonight. I'm like, okay, so uh, which costume do I put on? Do you know, so I was I was on stage all the time and my paychecks were great you know because you get extra money so I was happy about that but um yes I got to play them all very uh, often and then I, I I did another company much later on uh in Los Angeles where I played I, I actually did Sheila uh -huh. I contracted to do Sheila so that was a who playing Sheila as well and certainly not as much work because that Cassie dance eight times a week is uh, something else. You have to just be prepared to, you know, people think, oh, well, you do two hours a night and eight shows a week. What's that? But doing Cassie in a chorus line is your, your whole life sort of revolves around being strong enough and healthy enough and, you know, right enough on matinee days. <laughs> so I did, I, I, I did, that was my school. That was my acting and, and actually my singing. I, I got a, I, for a while during that time, I got a vocal coach and, you know, had tried to get rid of some struggles because I'm an alto. You know, I'm Ethel Merman. I sing to the back of the house <laughs> and that that break in my voice that I was trying to get rid of. But it just it, I, I just never had the time to study vocally. So I just sort of. The roles I did fit my voice. And when I did 42nd Street, we stood around a piano and it was set on me. Oh, and uh, wow. 
Wow. Yeah. So I guess that when I did Mrs. Dilber and said I wasn't going to ever sing on stage, didn't end up being true. <laughs> right. And so I'd be curious to know how did the audition for 42nd Street first happen? I know at that point someone else was actually supposed to be Peggy Sawyer. And yes, um, she had been hired and was in rehearsal for two weeks. Um, I had injured myself very badly. It's it's a it's a whole bullying thing that happens. You know, not everything about show business is beautiful. I I you know I was blessed. I got to go to work and get paid for something I absolutely love doing. But there's a lot of politics and things that go on. And I was having a struggle with the conductor. They didn't want to keep my tempo the way Michael Bennett said it. I did it very fast. I did the Cassie number fast but then we pulled it way down for the slow section when the mirrors come in and then when the mirrors went up the tempo shot up and we were in san francisco it was cold it was actually raining on stage sometimes it was an wow. old it was the golden gate we were reopening the golden gate theater and um you know chorus line has this the challenge of a covered pit you can't look down at the conductor and give them any kind of eye contact. You know, sometimes on the road, they'd be in a different building, actually, conducting off of a monitor. You know, so they were playing with my tempo. They didn't think I should be doing it that fast, even though Michael had said it and said he wanted it that fast. And it was a cold day. I was struggling to get through the layouts. And I, my nickname was Gumby. I mean, when I did the layouts, my head basically touched my butt. And so I ripped, I ripped the the muscle under my ribs by my diaphragm, uh, and I kept performing on it. And there was a misunderstanding with with everybody and with Michael. And it ended up that he he fired me. Uh -huh. So I was basically licking my wounds home in Chicago. I called Aaron Gold from the Chicago Tribune. He was. Uh, a, a friend of mine and used to you know write me up in his column and I said I had to tell you you'll never believe what just happened to me <gasps> Michael Bennett just fired me and he said oh my god are you kidding me what? what you know I told him the story he said well let me ask you how is your tap dancing and I said my tap dancing is phenomenal why do you ask and he said well there's an audition for Gower Champion's new show 42nd Street at the Auditorium Theater later this week do you think you could make it I went wow okay um, <laughs> tap dancing is from the waist down I, I think I can pull this off so I, I auditioned in Chicago and then there was a mix-up because it was Karen Baker Gower's assistant um, she said you have to Gower has to see you I gave them all my information. Um, I said, I'm going to stay in Chicago because at that point I was living in LA and they were calling my number in LA and I was sitting in Chicago waiting for them to call me because she said, we're going to call you. You have to see Gower and Gower needs to see you and uh, nothing. So I figured, well, I guess I read that wrong. And I went back to Buffalo, New York to pick up all my things that I had left from when I got fired and see my friends. They were my family, the chorus line company. And um, I uh, <laughs> got a call from my mom, like at, I don't know what God awful time in the morning. She had gotten one of those equity cards and she said, they have an open call for 42nd Street in New York today. And I think you should go. And it was raining and it was the hotel and taxi strike of 1980 going on. 
my friend Steven in the show, my best friend Steven at the time, he had an audition for dancing that day. He said, want to get on a plane with me let's go come on my house my apartment's being sublet we can there's nobody there we'll get ready i said i okay well i mean i've got the leotard i've got everything with me i guess i should and so i went to this open cattle call madly trying to hail a cab during the taxi strike in the rain with a huge purple suitcase and uh it was really against all odds i got to that audition uh-huh. and i went the entire audition and as they were going down the line to go in to sing our 16 bars they got to me and they went wonder wanda we've been we've been calling you and looking <laughs> all you oh my god we're so happy you're here and so i said well i was waiting for you in chicago we've been calling la and so i went in i sang where am i going 16 bars i danced in the middle of the room and gara was sitting right in front of me and he literally our eyes locked and there was this moment where I, I, it was, it was surreal. It ended up where they wanted us to come back on Tuesday. I had no hotel. There were no hotels. I didn't have a flight back. I didn't know what I was going to do. I couldn't stay till Tuesday. And so Karen came up to me and said, I want to introduce you to Gower while I am thinking, how in the heck am I going to get back here? And uh, the first thing he said to me, it was, so you're the girl from Chicago. From the moment you walked into this room, I couldn't take my eyes off of you. The role you're right for is already cast, but I'm not married to that. What color is your hair naturally? I said, I'll dye it. (laughs) I said, we laughed. He said, I said, it's brown. He said, I just think it would be a little less glamorous than the blonde hair. I said, fine, I'll do that. He said, I'm going to send you over to David Merrick's office now to, to pick up the scripts. And you'll hear from us about coming back for you to meet David Merrick. So I got in a plane against all odds, got to Chicago. On the way from the airport, we picked up the hair dye. Soon as I got home, I dyed my hair and the phone rang. 42nd Street people were calling the chorus line people to try to find me in Buffalo. They then said, can you be here on Monday for David Merrick? And I said, well, uh, yeah, I'll call the the airlines. It's Saturday night, I will call the airlines. And they said, and could you have your hair brown when you come? I said, it's already dyed. They said, great. So I went in Monday, flew in the next day, Sunday, got ready, went to the new Amsterdam roof. And as there weren't a lot of people. It was dark and dingy and Gower was in his coat, cold. <laughs> uh, there was several other girls. He had us, I, I, I had no more music than where am I going? He asked me to sing another song. I said, this is, I'm sorry, I've been working. I don't. <laughs> audition anymore this is all I have he said well can you sing happy birthday I said I think I can do that and <laughs> okay sing it as though you're getting timid and getting more and more confidence and by the end I want you to just blow it out and you're the star so I sang happy birthday Mr. Marsh <laughs> and then Gower came and sat with us in the back of the house he lined us up with a couple of there were I think four or five more girls that he lined up next to me Karen Prunzik being one of them who played Annie Annie next to me on Broadway uh, eventually. And we were just sitting, I was sitting on the ground in my dance bag and Gara came and sat in the chair on the aisle and and he was talking to Karen across the seat and was just conversing with us because Gara was an amazingly open, friendly, awesome human Mm -hmm. and uh, who made everybody feel at home. 
and uh, and then as as he's talking he he leaned over and looked down at me on the ground and he says by the way you'll be playing Peggy Sawyer <laughs> come on I want you to meet David Merrick so that was a week before my 22nd birthday wow and that's how that happened and um you know unfortunately the rumors were I I guess you can only imagine what the rumors were because they did fire Lisa Brown and um there I was all of a sudden this new girl uh and it it, it was always sort of about that but people thought that I slept with Gower to get the role basically uh -huh. and I had never met him in my life <laughs> before <laughs> that time it's truly I'm working on my book and I've been working on my book since I left the show it's been two years, but I never had an ending because it's it's called 42nd Street, The Love Story, The Journey of the Girl with the Purple Suitcase. And for me, there was never really an ending because Gower died right. and the love story ended, but it didn't really. And now I got a handle on, on it. So that's sort of what I'm I'm doing right now, trying to put these three books I have in my head into one book and figure out which one goes first. Uh -huh. So I thank you for this interview because, you know, talking about it again is helping me. So oh, remember. <laughs> I'm so glad that sounds like a great book. And so I would be curious to ask about that famous opening night. And did you have any idea that that was going to happen or? I found Gower on Thursday night in, in um, the early stages of kidney failure in his uh -huh. apartment. And um, it, it is, uh, I am working right now and I will send you a copy on an incredible interview I did with Rick McKay from Second Act Productions. He's, he's passed recently, but he asked me to do an interview for his second uh, film, Broadway Beyond the Golden Years, of a trilogy he was going to do. Uh, he said, my film won't be complete without you. It ends with 42nd Street, and I really need your part of the story. So I tell the whole thing in that interview. I'm going to be putting it up on YouTube here in the, probably the next week. Oh. Um, you know, it doesn't deserve to be on the cutting room floor. Rick, before he died, he sent me the entire interview oh. and just need to do some editing. But I, um, Gower was getting so weak and David Merrick was putting him through so much. There was, it, it was a drama when we got back to New York and we were playing to empty houses. He wouldn't let the show open and Gower was getting more and more ill. And I was basically living with Gower day and night at that point, you know, whether we were together at his apartment, my apartment or the rehearsal hall or theater. And I was getting very, very concerned. We walked home on Thursday night and I, Aaron Gold, the columnist was in town. Gower had to stop about five times just walking a very short distance from the theater to his apartment, um, literally having to sit down right across the street from his apartment before he got in. So I was concerned. He said, no, no, darling, you go, you go see him. I'll be fine. I didn't hear from him the next day. He didn't answer his private number. He didn't answer his private number after rehearsals, he didn't show up at rehearsals. And so I had, uh, I, I, I was feeling shaky and sick at that point, And I just, I had my key, obviously, to his apartment. And when I turned the latch to walk into 6K, everything froze in me. You know, I I knew something was dreadfully wrong. I found him. Luckily, I didn't turn the lights on in his bedroom. He was hemorrhaging. But I I called Larry, our, sta our stage manager, to get an ambulance. 
And then I met him in the emergency room at like five o'clock in the morning and he was awake and aware. But um, when I saw him Sunday before we opened, I, then David Merrick gave me his limousine. I was going back and forth to the hospital between the theater, doing the show to empty houses. And, and we just needed to open the show. We wanted to get Gower there to see it somehow. Right. And on Sunday night, when I saw him in the ICU, in complete kidney failure. I, I was like, I didn't know how I was going to tear myself away from him. Fiona Aldridge, who had designed our costumes, you know, she won the Oscar for The Great Gatsby. She did all the chorus line clothes. She designed my wedding gown eventually. Um, she designed a dress in the color Gower wanted me to wear in the show that he loved to see me in, uh, in this leotard sweat rehearsal. And she designed a dress and I promised Gower that I would be there after opening nights, model the dress uh -huh. and tell him what a hit we had and to please hold on. Uh, he never went to opening nights, but he was going to go to that opening night with me. So he, we knew he wouldn't be able to do that. If we could get him there in a wheelchair, any way we could get him at least to see the show, we, he wasn't going to go to the party. So um, when I saw him on Sunday, I knew. I, I It was a superhuman strength that could only come from God and my strong faith that I had to do that. It was his last dream. I needed to somehow gather the strength to walk away from him that day. I uh, I took my St. Jude medal off my necklace and I pinned it onto his hospital gown. My mom was in the room. He told me he loved me three times, barely getting it out. And then I needed to go back. It was our day off. I needed to go back and get ready for the opening night the next day. So I did not know. When I went back to the hospital the next day, they wouldn't let me see him because they told me he was sedated. And then David Merrick sequestered us into the theater and wouldn't let us go out. Um, so I found out on stage. I, I, have you seen that famous footage of, of David announcing it on stage? Yes, I have. That's when I found out after 12 curtain calls that Gower had died. Right. And, and the rest of my contract there trying to keep the show together for two years. I had a two year contract was literally um a nightmare for me at times it was he wasn't there to save his work they tried to change the show um yeah it was very sad but he got it done and we we did his dream and it was incredible because my dream was to create a hit a, 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 a starring role in a hit broadway show uh how many you know little girls dream that and never get to do it and i got to do it and I got to do it with Gower Champion. And it was our love story on the stage because the script changed pretty much to mirror our relationship. Uh -huh. So uh, that's that's the story that I'm writing. <laughs> it's the story that really happens. And uh, it's, in, it's incredible. Now there's a couple versions of 42nd Street happening. And I always ask people if they're doing the show, are you doing Gower's version or are you doing the new one? Because the new one's not Gowers, and it makes me very upset that they had to change anything at all. It was it was an iconic. It was the and that's what Rick McKay's film was about. The fact that at that point is when Broadway changed forever. There was never going to be another big, body musical like that. That's when all the shows from England came in, and and Broadway changed. Right. Uh, Till this day and then Hollywood came into Broadway like I couldn't get arrested after that after I left to have my 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 daughter 
I I was four months pregnant doing Cassie when I left Broadway to be a mom. But when I went back, everything was changed. There was no work. I couldn't I couldn't get a job. I went out to LA. Everything had changed because LA went to New York. And when you went to LA as a Broadway performer or star, they didn't think you could act in film. So I sort of went, well, now what do I do? (laughs) You know? (laughs) And uh, yeah, so Broadway changed. And I did have an opportunity at at, uh, one point, I injured myself back in 2006. I had an opportunity to go back to Broadway. I got a call to go do plexiglass slipper in Sarasota, Florida. It was a takeoff spin on the Cinderella story. It was an awesome show. And I played the mother of the prince, the queenie mother. I had a very long tap number with my own choreography and uh, combined with the choreographer they had. But it was a Shakespearean theater and they didn't know they had to mop the stage in between every show. And I was flying across the stage in my tap shoes to do that famous kick I do that you see on the album and in all the pictures. And I I literally almost hit the floor and and but I didn't. I should have. It would have been better. <laughs> Pretty much gave myself an entire body whiplash and almost cut my my right inner thigh muscle all the way through. I almost tore it all the way through. So I and I had to keep dancing on it because I didn't have an understudy for the next month. So the next 12 years became my workers' comp disability nightmare wow. of trying to get better. And we were trying to get me better because there was an opportunity to go back to Broadway to do No, No, Nanette with my best friend, Stephen. Uh-huh. And at that point, I basically said, you know, I, uh, I, I can't fight this anymore. I don't agree with the choreographer that you're, you're going to have to choose because of the politics. Because I was supposed to co-choreograph it, I said I can't, I can't fight that anymore. I, um, I'm going to pass on this. And I, I sort of got down on my knees and I thanked God for my career. And I said, you know, I've loved doing this. I have gotten paid to do something I love for 35. Well, at that point, it was, well, it was about 25 years, almost 30. I said I really would like. Never really was mine in the first place. Uh, I would like to give it back to you. And I want my life purpose work. Um, and at that point, I adopted a huge greyhound that I couldn't travel with that I always wanted to do. And it kept me put, stayed put in Florida, where I started writing the book. And um, I became an interfaith minister. Right. That's, that's the course I took. I decided to become an ordained minister and um, go in that on that unconventional path of um, being a healer and a counselor and, and uh, telling my story to people like you who still are interested, I guess. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> so that's sort of where I am right now. I've got my, I've got my rescue greyhounds and my little chihuahuas and Yorkie chihuahuas. And I live here with my mom now in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. <laughs> I had to leave Florida and come back in 2013 and uh, it's beautiful here but I'm extremely homesick for the beach because that's where I did most of my writing that I still have for the book and uh, looking forward to a trip down there um, I have a daughter who's 35 as a 36 now a son who's 26 and a grandson who just turned eight um, they're in Florida so um, I'm here with my mom and our animal children and no neighbors 
house. <laughs> it's beautiful. The night skies here are like nothing you've ever seen. And I'm I'm sort of just grateful to be alive and, and uh you know what? I'm I'm doing what I love right now and I'm I'm having really a great time uh doing that. I miss dancing. I'm gonna start getting back into the health club and I just bought myself a pair of Capizio's flats. <laughs> I can start dancing without the heels on. And and get myself back into shape with that. Uh-huh. What else can I tell you? It's wonderful. <laughs> what else would you like to know? <laughs> well, I would love to ask about the show that we didn't really talk about yet, which was nine that you did on Broadway. And oh. how did that come about with coming into Oh the- my gosh. Have you seen the have you seen the, the video I found? Oh, of no. Me doing it? oh no, I would love to see that. I found it. Well, actually, my my partner and best friend, Mark, found it. Or somebody did. No, he grabbed it off the internet. And thank God he did because it disappeared. And so I went and I got it again. And I went, who was able to sneak this from the balcony of the 6th Street Theater back then? You know, because they wouldn't allow cameras. That number was just too risque back then. They wouldn't allow it on the Live at Five interviews on television. They allowed the news crew to come in and tape uh, tape me singing simple, you know, because I was sort of covered in the jacket and everything. I had been out of work from 42nd Street for a year. I'd gone through all the money I saved because... David Merrick didn't pay his actors very much. And I literally only had $14,000 in the bank when I left that show with $1,000 a month for rent. And so I was basically almost penniless, had just had an accident with my 280Z, used the accident money to pay my rent, and the audition for nine came up. Wow. And um, I had a really awesome agent. It was the Fifi Oscar agency, Jeffrey Dunn. He believed in me, and not only that, nobody because nobody saw me do Cassie. Nobody saw me playing a 32-year-old woman when I was 20. I came on the scene as this newbie in a, in a box on the program of this ingenue young girl, innocent, off the train from Allentown. They never thought I could do Carla. Nobody thought I could do it. Right. They made me learn the number. I literally rehearsed with the dance captain and Tommy Crasco, the musical director, for a, the better part of a week at the theater. I had to learn the number. They put me in Anita's costume, and I had to audition in full costume makeup for the producer and uh, Michael Stewart and Tommy Toon on that white box. And uh, they gave me the role. And I wish the show would have run longer. I loved doing that role. It was so much fun. At first, I'm like, I had so much bullying going on when I was in high school that that literally the counselor and principal asked me to leave. Uh-huh. They couldn't handle it. And, and it was from the girls mostly. So here I'm walking on into this situation with a stage full of women, right? The complete cast was women. Except for Sergio Franchi. I did it with Sergio because he had taken over for all. But um, it was incredible. I got to do it for six months. The ladies welcomed me with open arms. And it was an amazing experience. Totally out of my comfort zone. By that time, I had met an incredible vocal coach, voice teacher. And um, he got me ready for the audition to sing. I mean, I hit a high C 
literally after standing on my head on that box <laughs> and I'm also, you know, so it was a stretch for me and it was talk about being nervous <laughs> to go in and do something on, on in front of people yet. You know, the audition was one thing, belting out a call from the Vatican was fine. It was singing simple over on that little tiny thing, balancing in the corner of the proscenium. But it was uh, another one of those stories that are, are going to be in my book, you know, because it, it was another against all odds kind of thing um, where people didn't think I could do it. And I said, yes, I can. <laughs> yes, I, I'll show you. I can do it. So I will definitely get that. Well, actually, if you just type my name into, I'll send you the link. But if you type my name and uh, a call from the Vatican or just nine, Wanda Richard 9, you'll see it because I, I probably several months ago, I put that up. So getting to see myself do it for the first time was quite an experience. And it's just as I remember it, it was a gas to, uh, to do that singing on my head like that and it was very risque and it was nerve-wracking because you know halfway through the number you you go into this I don't know what you want to call it and as an actress I had never quite done anything like that but once I got comfortable with it I it was probably close to when it closed when we got that notice that the show was closing everybody was so bummed out we uh. it had gone on forever and we were still having pretty good audience turnout so i don't know you never know behind the scenes what the financial you know just struggles are with with running a show like that and what the overhead costs are but i got to do it and i'm really grateful i got to do something that was so out of character for me almost lost my hair doing it because they dyed me platinum blonde and they ended up trying to get the color right so many times that they started losing my hair so they had to make a wig for me <laughs> It was crazy. It was a crazy time. Uh, but uh, yes. And um, then Michael asked me um, to come back and do Chorus Line at that point. He said, you've done 42nd Street. Now you've done nine. You need to come back and do Chorus Line on Broadway. And he took me out to dinner because he came to see me in nine. And at that time, Michael Bennett and Tommy Toon were having this little, I don't know. I don't think it was so little snit over Dreamgirls being <laughs> at the same time, whatever that was. But he came and he sat in Tommy's theater and he watched the number. Then he left and waited for me in the limousine for the second half. And he took me to dinner and asked me to come back and do what he said. I can't fire anybody, you know, to put you in there. But as soon as there's an opening, I want you to come back and do Cassie on Broadway. You absolutely have to, Wanda. I need you to come back and do it there. And that's sort of where my Broadway career ended. I made the choice at that point that. All I really wanted to do, I, I hit the zenith of my paradigm with 42nd Street. I really just wanted to be a mom. Uh -huh. So I, I left Chorus Line one night. I just walked off stage and said, I can't do those turns down that line anymore. And my belly's starting to show in this little red leotard. And Tom, sorry, but that was my last performance. I, I can't do it anymore. Uh -huh. That was my last Broadway performance. That was it. Wow. That is very interesting. and. Were there other, I'd be curious to know, were there other offers around that time that you had to turn down to do Broadway or off-Broadway or anything like that? No. <laughs> Nobody, I, I literally went, when, okay, so Goward died, obviously. Um, I was nursing my brand new baby girl <laughs> in my house in Connecticut. And 
uh, this was after I'd done scandal, the workshops with Michael and everything. And Michael Bennett's face came on the news and everything inside me stopped uh -huh. because usually, you know, when you see something like that, it's an obituary. And sure enough, they were announcing the fact that Michael Bennett had died. And at that moment, I, I I almost said out loud, well, that's the end of my career. Because with Gower and Michael both gone, nobody's going to hire me. Uh -huh. I was a Michael Bennett dancer. I was not a Bob Fosse dancer. And there are cliques on Broadway. And there are, there's just a lot of politics. It right. didn't matter that I had done 42nd Street. It didn't matter how successful it was and how well known I became. Uh, nobody was interested anymore. So that's just basically, I, I went back to work in Sugar Babies at the Elms for Dinner Theater when my daughter was four months old. So it was, that was the only thing literally that I went right back to work doing. Uh -huh. And uh, then I, I went out on the cruise ships. I got a call, went out on the cruise ships. I went back to Forest Line as an understudy for a while. But um there was really nothing going on. Les Mis was there. Cats was there. There there weren't anything. You know, I don't sing like that. I don't have the vocal range to do any of those roles. And that's when Broadway had changed. So there really wasn't anything even available for me to go back to. Uh -huh. It was uh -huh. a little bit of... Got uh -huh. punched at the time. Uh, I'm sorry. And... To, um, and thinking about the runs of shows like you were talking about with Nine, how did you decide to leave 42nd Street when you did? And what was that sort of? Well, I had a two-year contract. And because Gower wasn't there to oversee the show, the two years felt like 10. Uh, because people were trying, you know, new people came in and out and they're trying to change things that Gower had taken out. And I refused to change anything. So it was a struggle for me because I was watching our love story play out on stage every night. And I, I literally couldn't wait to get out of there. Uh -huh. And David wouldn't let me out of my contract. And um, I signed with William Morris. And I'm pretty sure that David set up that appointment saying, don't ever take her out of my show. You know, like I'd get scripts for movie things and television things, but I would never be allowed out of my contract. Uh -huh. And then the baker's wife came up uh, and Stephen Schwartz, they were doing a, a, a scaled down version of it out in Santa Barbara. And David did let me out of my contract a month early. Yes, a month early at that point to go do Baker's Wife. So I went out to Santa Barbara to do that. And then after that, I, I don't even really call. I, I just, I couldn't wait to get out of there to answer your question. I, I was glad I had another show to go do. You know, wasn't because you, you do something for that long with that much history that's so close to your heart with so much emotional baggage attached to it that, you know, it, it was it was great to just get my mind off of it, leave the show, leave New York for a while and go do something different. That that, that didn't end up panning out and coming back to New York either. It was just it wasn't meant to be at the time. Right. I did some TV stuff. I did the doctors for a while before it went off the air. So I did that soap opera and learned what it was like to be in a TV studio, freezing all day, waiting to go on and, and <laughs> you know play your role. And I did um, One Life to Live as a, a recurring small part. Uh, I did a Law and Order uh, one episode, and I also did a McCor Hardcastle and McCormick. 
And that was the extent of my actual acting on television. Other than that, um, when I was out in LA, I got to work with Carol Burnett and Bob Mackey and Patrick Cassidy and doing company and um, doing from the top with uh, Ken and Mitzi, who were her writers on the Carol Burnett show. We got to rehearse in her studios at CBS, which was an absolutely mind-blowing, amazing experience. And she's an amazing lady. Um, so I got, I did get to do some theater out in LA, but not very much. I choreographed their playing our song out there also at the Long Beach Civic Light Opera with Jack Wagner and Lorna Patterson. And that was fun because I had always wanted to choreograph and that was my one and only sort of chance that I got to do that. It was great though. And it was a great experience. So that pretty much, I think I'm thinking of all the show posters I used to have on my wall. Did I cover all the shows that I did? The ones that are important to talk about, I think I did. Yes. Well, I would love to just close by asking you, with such a wonderful career, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out? Always believe that you can do anything you set your mind to. Work hard. Always have a positive attitude. Don't let any form of rejection ever take you away from knowing what's in your heart and soul. Uh, of your passion for doing what you love to do and always always make it a priority when you're on stage as an actress or actor to listen to listen to your co-stars or your wh wh whoever else is in the cast so many times you I have worked with people who are you, you can see it on their face they're standing there waiting and contemplating how they're gonna deliver their next line. If you remember to stay in the moment and really listen, and this is coming from Michael Bennett who, who told me what a good listener I was and then made me aware of the fact that it was the single most important thing to do as an actor or actress is to listen when you're in the middle of a scene and respond rather than act. So I think, that pretty much covers it. Always believe in yourself. I had the great blessing of having a family that empowered me to believe I could do anything I set my mind to. But you also have to be realistic. I mean, you know, I know I don't have ballerina feet or ballerina legs. I can kick up to here, but I can't hold it up to there. I'd never go on an audition that required that. You know, so be realistic healthy amount of self-honesty when you look in the mirror. Oh, and the other thing that I did, and this might be something that's just what I did, when I would get a script, I would just lock myself in the bathroom and I'd read it to myself in the mirror. Oh. I'd watch myself in the mirror because you'd be amazed at how much that can help you. Because again, I didn't go to acting. I had no acting classes. That's, that's sort of what I did. That's what I did to make sure that I was believable. And I, I I would probably think that most people that have gone and studied, you know, diligently with uh, well-known acting teachers and coaches, they would probably agree. Just go in the bathroom, learn your lines, and always know your lines. Always be prepared. Oh, that but is never, good. ever, ever, ever stop believing in yourself. That's that's the most important thing. That is great advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor to meet you and 
Well, thank you so much, Charles. It's been an honor to be here. And Listeners, will- thank you for tuning in and make sure to come back next time when I will be joined by Tony-winning director Doug Hughes. Doug Hughes recently helmed a revival of Brian Friel's Translations at the Irish Rep, and his myriad Broadway credits include Doubt, The Royal Family, Junk, Mrs. Warren's Profession, Inherit the Wind, A Man for All Seasons, A Touch of the Poet, and An Enemy of the People. Throughout his career, he has served as the artistic director or associate artistic director at the Long Wharf Theatre, MCC, the Manhattan Theatre Club, and the Guthrie Theatre. You won't want to miss that interview, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.